Well, about a month ago, uh, we uh, started a little series on justice and uh, talked a little bit about what justice is, every man receiving his due, and uh, then try to balance justice with the truth of mercy. And uh, today, we want to talk about the source of justice. Where does it come from? From what does it come? And uh, I guess the first question I should ask before you pull your pillows out is, (laughs) why should we care? Young people, why should you care? about where justice comes from. Older people, why should you care? Well, uh, anybody here go to hear uh, Dr. Frank Turek talk this week anywhere? Uh, A few of you have, that's great. Uh, He was one of the authors of the book we studied a year or two ago, I Don't Have the Faith to Be an Atheist. Uh, Great apologist, and uh, he mentioned something at a luncheon I went to. Uh, he, he, he referred to Josh McDowell, who's wrote a, written a book recently called The Last Christian Generation. And as I understand, the premise is that the, the Barna and the other people, their polls show that of the, the children, the Christian children of the boomers, you know, the, my kids and, and a lot of the young people here, among that group, the fallout rate, people who fall away from the faith, is about 75%. And Josh's point is, a generation cannot sustain that rate of attrition and pass on another generation. So people of my generation may be considered, perhaps, the last Christian generation in our culture, Uh, absent some change, so maybe, young people, you might want to take an interest in this. Um, You know, practically speaking, uh, there may be some other things. Um, One is that ideas have consequences. Ideas have consequences, and justice is a pretty big idea, pretty important. your source of justice and law, largely affected by your worldview, will dictate where you end up as an individual and collectively where we end up as a nation. And so let's think of some practical examples here of, of why it might make a difference. You all been hearing talk about the fairness doctrine, this thing where, you know, the idea is that because the government regulates the radio waves uh, it should require that all views get equal time. And so the big concern is because the conservatives dominate the radio and liberals the other forms of media, that, um, that of course, because liberal radio does not draw sponsors, in order to comply with this fairness doctrine, the broadcasters will simply eliminate all talk radio and instead go toward a format that will attract uh, people interested in entertainment and sports, or music and sports, I suppose, uh, uh, either you know, those who uh, 
would really hate to listen to windbags talking about meaningless issues or those who prefer to do something other than think, depending on your perspective. Um, But let's suppose, let's pretend here that Congress was considering a measure to go beyond talk radio to music, another form of expression. And, and, And they decided that each form was entitled to be heard. Uh, and let's say the proposal is that no one genre of music should be solely presented, uh, but rather all forms should share equal time. Um, and so uh, how about equal time for rock and classic and reggae and primitive garage and hip-hop and folk and country and Barry Manilow, parenthetically, Barry Manilow is what was allegedly used by in Gitmo to torture terrorists. Okay? Can you imagine? I write the songs, I write the songs. And pretty soon they'll be saying, I'll tell you anything. <laughs> Over. Um. Anyway, and of course, you have to include all the cultural varieties, including Polka, all right? Everybody gets equal time, all forms of music. And let's say you're saying, well, don't, you know, the younger generation said, no sweat, I don't care about radio. Let's say they further extended it to all downloadable music to ensure that all music is not only equally distributed, but listened to, okay? Just think about that one. What about some other possibilities? What if Congress tried to dictate what's acceptable or what's not acceptable for your pastor to preach from the pulpit? What if they tried to to determine that a child is not considered a person under our Constitution until cognitive abilities are determined? What if they determined that explicitly adult entertainment should be allowed throughout the viewing day, which we're not too far from? Um, What if they determined that no woman could bear more than two children in her lifetime. What if these were all proposals or any one of them? And let's think about this. While the music example that I gave is admittedly pretty silly, intended only to scare the living daylights out of the youth, just pretend and ask yourself an honest question. If you or I, could you or I, come up with a cogent argument or even a sentence if we were asked to write a letter to the editor in opposition to any of these proposals? If we don't understand basic foundations of justice and law, it may be hard for us to come up with anything other than, well, well, because I don't like it. We've got to go back to our sources. What is fundamentally wrong with any of those proposals? Well, um, the, uh, the answer lies in taking a look at uh, where do these things come from. As Christians, we believe that God has provided laws for mankind and a means of discovering those laws. Uh, Carl uh, F.H. Henry said, God is the only legislator 
earthly rulers and legislative bodies are alike accountable to him from whom stems all obligation, religious, ethical, and civil. So if Henry's correct, there are serious implications for mankind, and the opposing views could be generally categorized as systems of man-centered law. While our justice system was founded upon biblical principles, which we're going to talk a little bit about later, uh, the seeds of atheism were planted about 150 years ago, and they have now grown into mighty oaks in law. We generally refer to those as this secular humanist uh, law, law system or justice, uh, uh, kind of characterized by Julian Huxley, who said, Our present knowledge indeed forces us to view that the world, is, the world of reality is evolution, a single process of self-transformation. Uh, to better understand how we got to where we are today, we need to take a brief history or go through a brief history of educational history in the United States. And we'll start in 1634 when Harvard College was founded. Okay? At that time, Harvard had a seal, which included a shield with some books generally believed to be Bibles on them, and the word veritas across Latin for truth. Okay? Uh, apparently, there was uh, some disagreement between the Board of Governors and the clergy that were running the college because the Board of Governors thought the clergy were too liberal and trying to crowd God out. So they... Uh, sometime after that, they added the words in Christi Glorium to the seal, uh, in Christ be glory. And later, the words Christo et Ecclesiae were, at, were added, which means for Christ and church. This is to the seal of Harvard College. And that remained the seal for 200 years until the presidency of a man named Charles William Eliot. Uh, and he served as president of Harvard for 40 years, starting in 1869. Mr. Elliott was a scientist, my background. And so the first thing he did was he added the word veritas back with, uh, for church and glory, back onto the seal. And then pretty soon he, he eliminated all but veritas, leaving the more ambiguous uh, slogan for the, uh, for the school. Uh, Eliot understood the, the effectiveness of gradualism, and he pushed for educational changes based upon, quote, the best human thinking and feeling concerning truth, beauty, and goodness. And to support this rather amorphous notion and to calm the more conservative alumni donors, no doubt, he used scripture from Jesus himself. From John 8, he said, and you shall know the truth, and the truth shall set you free. And with that quote, he forged a nationwide movement across America, and Christ's words started popping up on college and government buildings all over the place. Uh, what doesn't appear is the first half of the verse, which is, if you continue in my word, then you are my disciples, and you shall know the truth, and the truth shall set you free. Eliot was as sly as he was insightful. Eliot argued that the key to knowledge was man's observation of the discipline of a scientific mind. And for him, God was really just nature. 
and he championed the new theory of Charles Darwin, published in 1859. Evolution was the cornerstone of, of that mindset, and not just biological evolution. Uh, through academia, Eliot promoted the scientific method and evolution in history, philosophy, theology, politics, and law. He argued that man and the universe were not governed by fixed and unchangeable laws, but instead by slowly changing habits. He was also a man of action. Uh, he hired a little-known and inexperienced lawyer by the name of Christopher Columbus Langdell to a professorship at Harvard Law School. And Langdell, uh, a position uh, traditionally occupied by uh, you know, more experienced trial attorneys, Langdale provided Eliot a way to change legal education because the two of them shared a commitment to the scientific method to study and teach law, and Langdale quickly became the dean of the law school. Prior to Langdale, Harvard law professors would teach fixed and unchanging law and legal principles and then illustrate those principles by application in particular cases. Law students were taught to study the cases to understand how the general principles were applied to particular legal conflicts, and then how to guide a judge to the, to the appropriate law or rules of law and to call the judge's attention to the controlling facts of each case. Uh, Langdell and the professors that he hired taught that instead, the legal rules and doctrines evolved gradually by judges' decisions that one learned, and that one learned those rules by studying books containing cases known by law students as case books. And these, in fact, these cases were the original sources of the law and the legal doctrines. Now, that view was adopted by somebody. Let me see. Has anybody over here heard the name? Oliver Wendell Holmes. How many? Pretty, pretty famous name, anyway. Those of you in, in English, anybody who studied poetry ever heard that name? Okay. That was Senior. Oliver, Oliver Wendell Holmes Senior was a, a, a medical doctor. He was also a poet, and best known, I think, for writing the, the poem Old Ironsides. His wife was an abolitionist. So Oliver Wendell Holmes Jr. came from good stock. Uh, and uh, in fact, as he grew, he, uh, he was involved with the Civil War, and he was a hero. But he emerged from that war convinced that government and laws were founded on violence. And after receiving his legal education at Harvard Law, he, uh, he went from that premise to later eventually develop what's called the positivist view of law, which was a rejection of the natural law theory that had dominated legal education before that. Holmes wrote that the only source of law, properly speaking, is a judicial decision. Judges decide cases on the facts and then write opinions afterwards presenting a rationale for the decision. The true basis of the decision, however, is often an, quote, inarticulate major premise, unquote, outside the law. Now, so there's 
there's something that even Holmes believed there was something out there that guided the judges in coming up with their decisions. And his, his worldview can best be summarized in this statement, or at least you can get an idea where he's coming from. Holmes said, I see no reason for attributing to man a significance different in kind from that which belongs to a baboon or a grain of sand. Okay? Now that might beg the question of Justice Holmes, why should man enjoy rights not enjoyed by animals or sand? Um, now, I should say that, you know, Mike Patton would tell you he's heard this name over and over again if, in law school. He is perhaps the most famous Supreme Court justice in our judicial history. But Holmes believed that the law was simply an embodiment of the ends and purposes of society at a given point in history, and that ideas and values, whether employed by judges or others, were not absolutes, but products of changing social conditions. Perhaps one of the most articulate and concise thinkers uh, in, in our history and in terms of the law. He, was, he has been greatly reverenced over time. And uh, what's missing from that evaluation of him is an understanding of where his foundational ideas led him. In fact, there are some critics who believe that he saw few restraints on the power of the governing class to enact its own interests in law, and they label his views as moral relativism and utilitarianism, the, the greatest good for the greatest number. Uh, he supported a broad reading of the constitutional guarantee of freedom of speech, which led us to our present quagmire concerning pornography. But this most famous and revered jurist in the history of the United States, the land of the free and the home of the brave, was led by his worldview to write an opinion for the United States Supreme Court upholding a Virginia law in 1927, allowing state-ordered compulsory sterilization of an institutionalized, allegedly feeble-minded woman. And in that decision, he wrote, It is better for all the world if instead of waiting to execute degenerate offspring for crime or to let them starve for their imbecility, society can prevent those who are manifestly unfit from continuing their kind. Three generations of imbeciles are enough. Anybody see any connections? Well... Uh, in 1961, there was a tr the movie made about the Nuremberg trials called Justice at Nuremberg. Okay? Nuremberg was where they held the Nazi war criminal trials. And in the movie, I've not been able to determine whether this actually occurred in the trial, but in the movie, the lawyer defended his Nazi client with the quote from Justice Holmes. Now, whether it's reality or it's just that Hollywood saw the inescapable connection, ideas have consequences. I mentioned natural law earlier. Uh, 
And that's pretty much what, what guided us through what was called the common law developed in England uh, and, 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 and uh, described most, most uh, comprehensively by Sir William, Black's, William Blackstone. Natural law assumes that there is one true morality, one proper way of man to behave, and it's discoverable by man. Specific laws arise uh, from natural law to enforce adherence to this code, and likewise, natural rights exist independent of man or what man thinks, much like the law of gravity. But man may discover them and enact them, uh, and enact laws in conformance with those. An example is that Abraham Lincoln opposed slavery uh, in a a speech given in 1857 because it violated natural law principles. But that same year, the United States Supreme Court ruled uh, opposite to that in the Dred Scott decision. More recently... Those of you who were around in the early 1990s remember the confirmation hearings for Justice Clarence Thomas. Clarence Thomas is a black man, and he was replacing on the Supreme Court Thurgood Marshall, likewise a black man. Uh, Thurgood Marshall won most of his fame through the U.S. Supreme Court case of uh, uh, Brown versus Topeka Board of Education the one that we have the building for right over here uh, in Topeka. Um, and Justice Thomas, in his writings, the one uh, appointed to the Supreme Court in 1991, agreed with the result but was astounded that the court in the Topeka, uh, the Brown versus Board Education, based their decision on social environment the feeling of inferiority because of the segregation instead of asserting that segregation violated the notion of liberty within natural law. You see, ideas have consequences. And even the social liberals should be looking for a more solid foundation in which they could find in natural law because it protects everyone. But because of the snake oil of evolution applied to justice, they will naturally go down the road of Justice Holmes instead. Now, some humanists, understanding the problem they're in, will embrace natural law to an extent because it provides a more stable source of law than human interpretation. But when they're faced with the issue of the origin of natural law, these humanists, you know, they've got to come up with something else. Uh, it's either evolutionary process, you know, going back, you know, uh, in infinity, or just common sense. And as one critic of, the, of that view has said, when one wonders in evolutionary history, did hominids first acquire natural rights? I mean, it's kind of a self-defeating position. Most humanists stay true to their core beliefs and deny that natural law is valid, and they adopt the system that we call legal positivism, made popular by Justice Holmes, which claims that the state is the ultimate authority for creating law. They reason that because God is a mythical being and natural law is simply legal fiction, man must rely on his reason to discern what is legal, and the men who decide the law are the men in power, a.k.a. the government. Now, this view 
creates at least a couple of inconsistencies or concerns. One is certainly uncertainty of the law. As one uh, famous law school dean, Roscoe Pound, put it, from the time when lawgivers gave over the attempt to to maintain the general security by belief that particular bodies of human law had been divinely dictated, revealed, or sanctioned, they have had to uh, wrestle with the problem of proving to mankind that the law was something fixed and settled, whose whose authority was beyond question, while at the same time enabling it to make constant readjustments and occasional radical changes under the pressure of infinite and variable human desires. The other problem uh, with that, that particular view is that the government has the potential to take advantage of its position as the ultimate source of legal truth. In other words, Big Brother wields all the power and, is, and man is merely a cog in the machinery of the state. So that generally is a thumbnail sketch of secular humanist law or, or legal theory. Uh, there's another one today we won't spend much time on called cosmic humanist, humanist law. And under this view, all authority resides not with the state and with the judges, but with the individual. And since every person is good and every person is God and God is every person, man can only decide, man only, each individual can only decide the legality of an action by connecting with this God within. Uh, Therefore, every person must act as his own legal authority because any manifestation of outside authority hinders communion with one's own godhood. Uh, While secular humanist law prevails within our legal system today, cosmic humanism prevails perhaps in the culture. Uh, And hearts of many youth today are swayed by it. And, of course, we see the results even within the church, how the lack of conviction that there is even an absolute truth uh, we see in one study after another. So for a lot of young people that say, oh, the Holocaust was just terrible for me, but for Hitler it was okay. You, you see the problems with that, that particular view. It's so wacky we won't spend any more time on it. Uh, the Christian view of law hopefully clears up the confusion over the nature of law. Generally, man is in rebellion against God and his law. So... Law, earthly law, is required to curb that rebellion. And uh, while the implementation of laws will always be imperfect, uh, that's simply because man is a fallen creature. So how can man discover what God commands man to do or not do? Uh, What causes us to know how we should behave and limit those fleshly tendencies? Well, Quite simply, God revealed his law to mankind in a couple of ways. Uh, Every person has a conscience, an inherent sense of right and wrong. Sir William Blackstone, writing on the common law uh, uh, in uh, his commentaries, wrote, Man, considered as a creature, must necessarily be subject to the laws of his creator, for he's an entirely dependent being. And consequently, as man depends absolutely upon his maker for everything, it is necessary that he should in all points conform to his maker's will. The will of his maker is called the law of nature, natural law. 
If you'll turn to Romans 1, we're just going to take a look at a couple of passages there, which helps us understand this. And there, starting in verse 16, it says, I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, but the righteous man shall live by faith. Verse 18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth and unrighteousness, because that which is known about God is evident within them, for God made it evident to them. Since the creation of the world, His invisible attributes, His eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made, so that they are without excuse. And if you continue on there, let let me summarize a little bit. Uh, Even though they knew God, they dishonored Him as God, and they were unthankful, they claimed to be wise, instead they became fools, they exchanged the truth of God for a lie, they worshipped and served the creator more, creature more than the creator. Uh, and when you look at our present culture, you may see some resemblances. Therefore, God gave them over to the lust of their hearts, to impurity, and their bodies were dishonored among them. God gave them over to degrading passions, and they committed all kinds of unnatural and perverse acts. And because they did not acknowledge God any longer, God gave them over to a depraved mind to do those things which are not proper, including here a laundry list, unrighteousness, wickedness, greed, evil, envy, murder, strife, deceit, malice, gossiping, slandering, hating God, insolent, arrogant, boastful, disobedient to parents, untrustworthy, and unloving. Everyone knew these things are wrong, but they did them anyway, and they encouraged others to do them. You know, there's really nothing new under the sun. In fact, the last consequence mentioned in that list is the absence of mercy. Now, what kind of a basic social order, not to mention justice, could come out of that? For society to reject God, even though creation spotlights Him, is to create the worst of all worlds. Anarchy without a semblance of justice. And where there is no justice, there's no context for mercy. While I don't think we're quite there yet, uh, are we not gradually approaching that world? Let's let's skip over to chapter 2, just starting, starting at verse 14 in Romans. When the Gentiles who do not have the law do instinctively the things of the law, these, not having the law, are a law unto themselves, in that they show the work of the law written in their hearts, their conscience bearing witness and their thoughts alternatively or alternately accusing or else defending them. On the day when, according to my gospel, God will judge the secrets of men through Jesus Christ. See, in these two passages, in Romans 1 and 2, uh, Paul claims that every man has a fundamental knowledge that there is a transcendent law by which he should abide, and yet oftentimes he fails to obey. Man's fallen nature does not destroy 
his awareness of God or of good and evil. Uh, Though man sees through a glass darkly, he still sees. This is what we call general revelation and what Blackstone called the law of nature. Every person knows in his heart or his conscience that there is a right and a wrong. But we know God's plan for us in law uh, more specifically. God made his law known through his written word, which fleshes out the general revelation of the natural law so that we will know what God considers to be lawful. If you look in several passages, including Leviticus 18, God warns uh, about the legal structures of Egypt and and, and Canaan. Neither shall you walk in their ordinances. Instead, he commands Israel to prohibit incest, adultery, infanticide, abortion, sodomy, bestiality, because these are all contrary to nature. Hence the word natural law. And they undermine the dignity and sanctity of the God-ordained home. Blackstone said, upon these two foundations, the law of nature, or what we would call general revelation, and the law of revelation, which is for us special revelation, depend all human law. And we can call these two foundations the basis for Christian or divine law. Uh, And that would provide a means of judging law enacted by man. I don't mean to say that our, our, our judicial or our legislative system is totally corrupt and can do nothing right. I believe because we have the, the, a conscience, we have general revelation that people still are doggedly reminded about what's right and wrong in their hearts, even if they're not Christians. They have a sense of that. Uh, but it is harder and harder to defend that view. Uh, got just a brief time left here. Let me just give you a test and see if you can identify um, some viewpoints before I conclude. Um, I can find it. Here we go. Here's a quote. As with laws, so with morals. Human beings seem quite capable of making on their own sensible and sensitive decisions affecting conduct. Where would that come from? And what, what, what viewpoint would that be? Human beings seem to be able to make up their own minds about law and morals. Okay? Secular humanist, right? That's written by uh, uh, Frederick Edwards, the editor of The Humanist. How about this one? Law, morality, religion are to the common people so many prejudices of the privileged few beyond which lurk in ambush just as many self-interests of the privileged. A little bit more strident. That was Karl Marx. Uh, here's another one. As extensions of God, we are ourselves the spirit of compassion. And in our right minds, we don't seek to judge but to heal. Is that Christian? Cosmic. Marianne Williamson, a Unity Church ministret. Okay. To cut off law from its ethical sources is to strike a terrible blow at the rule of law. 
little closer. Okay, natural law, that would be Russell Kirk, a traditional, traditionalist uh, conservative. So to summarize here, the legal positivist, you know, the, the, the one that follows the strain of thought from Justice Oliver Wendell Holmes, really has no criteria for judging rightness of a statute or a law other than society's perceived needs. And, of course, the self-governors of the New Age movement reject even the notion of rightness outside the individual. The Christian can and must refer to the divine law not only as a basis for declaring a law just or unjust, but also to govern him or herself. Now, because we know the source of justice, we also know the source of our security. In 1 John 5, it says this, We know that no one is born of God is controlled by sin. No one who is born of God is controlled by sin. But he who was born of God keeps him, and the evil one does not touch him. We know that we are of God and that the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. And we know that the, God, the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know Him who is true. And we are in Him who is true. In His Son, Jesus Christ, this is the true God and eternal life. Little children, guard yourself from idols. Father, we give our praises to you, and we thank you, Lord, for all that you have given. Lord, you give and you take away. Uh, but we have security in that, knowing that you do provide a solid foundation. Lord, I pray that you would give us wisdom one way or another to understand these foundational principles, to develop each and every one of us, the presuppositions that we need to understand within our culture when the arguments come to change willy-nilly this, this uh, principle or that particular law so that we can be active, we can convince others, so that we can be salt and light. I pray, Lord, that you would continue to work in and through each, each saint here, that you would continue to humble us and help us to understand that we will not win necessarily by argument. Uh, we may convince some minds, but ultimately we will win by the love of Christ. Thank you, Father. We give you all the praises and the glory and pray that you would continue to walk with us this day and every day of our lives. In the precious name of Jesus, amen.